0: So the reading for today's sermon is from Exodus chapter 8. Am I right that you customarily stand for the reading of the Word of God? Exodus chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your servants and on all your people. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand, With your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields. Then they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Thus far the reading of God's word. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray together. Merciful God, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark, but that you've sent your spirit to indwell us, and to be light among us and within us, and that you now open your sacred mouth to speak the words afresh, which your spirit first inspired so many thousands of years ago, and we pray that we would hear them afresh as words to us, so that the Lord Jesus would lead and instruct us this day, that we may walk like him and live like him, and understand the world in which you've placed us, so that we may live with righteousness and faithfulness, lives that are good for one another, a blessing to the world and pleasing in your sight, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Please be seated, and let me just begin by thanking you all, and particularly your Uh, Minister, Pastor Booth, and your elders for the invitation to be here. Um, My family and I have really been blessed by the welcome that we've received as we've, uh, well, been all over Texas mainly uh, in the last couple of weeks, but I've had the privilege of travelling a bit more before they came, and it's been lovely to meet with you and other friends, so thank you for your welcome. Um, We began uh, before the service today in Sunday School by thinking about um, the challenges of living in a world that's increasingly hostile to the Gospel And I want to continue uh, in that vein in the sermon today. Living in a world that is hostile to the gospel to the point where the world is bringing upon itself the judgment of God. I don't presume by making that statement to know the mind of God in detail. I do, however, presume to say what the scriptures say, which is that the Lord is sovereign over all the affairs of men and women and nations, and not a sparrow falls to the ground except by the will of our Father, and he knows the number of hairs on your head. Every single thing that happens in this whole creation is his doing, and when you see a nation rebelling against the living God, and then you see a nation going down the tubes, then you're invited to put two and two together and... It suggests that the Lord is acting in judgment against the nation that I love back in England and that you love and live in here. And the question then arises, how are we supposed to relate to this world that God's place is in? How are we supposed to relate to our culture? How are, we are spo- how are we supposed to interpret our history and live faithfully when over the next few years and decades the culture that we live in will be growing if all these trends continue increasingly hostile. Um, young people and children, I'm looking around at you here, and a number of folks under the age of 15 or so, um, you will face challenges when you get to your parents' age that your parents never dreamed about. It will not be enough for you to just do what your parents did. Because when they were growing up, back in the 1500s, (laughs) the world was a very different place. And one of the things I want to help you to think through today is what is God doing in this world that you're growing up into that one day, Lord willing, you may be fathers and mothers in? And what are you supposed to think and how are you supposed to respond to this? I want to begin, actually, just by making a couple of comments that arise from uh, uh, Matthew chapter 9, a very famous um, incident... In the life of Jesus, no no need to turn to it, it will be familiar to you. We'll get back to Exodus 8 in a a moment or two. But this takes us to um, uh, an uh, occasion where Jesus, uh, Matthew 9, um, uh, is going through the uh, cities and villages, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom and healing people and so on. And he sees the crowds, verse 36 remarks, he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what's intriguing about this is Jesus here exhibits not one reaction to the world around him, but two distinctly different reactions to different groups of people. And it's these two reactions I want you to have in mind as we approach Exodus chapter 8. The first reaction is a reaction to the leaders of the people of God. Jesus remarks. Alluding to Exodus chapter 34 that the people who he saw and had pity on in the hills of Judea were like sheep without a shepherd. And of course you remember Ezekiel 34. uh, The prophet denounces the shepherds of Israel, the leaders, the religious and civil leaders, for failing to be faithful sheep, for letting the sheep stray, for letting people become vulnerable, for not caring for the sheep entrusted to them. And so he says that the weak you've not strengthened and the sick you've not healed and the injured you've not bound up and the strayed you've not brought back and the lost you've not sought but you've ruled them with force and harshness so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says, that's what you've done to the leaders of his day. And he's seething with righteous fury echoing this condemnation of the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, The leaders of the people of Israel who have so neglected their responsibilities to their people, that the people have really started to suffer the consequences. That's the first reaction. A very strident condemnation of the leaders of the people. But there's a second reaction, of course, which is highlighted in precisely the same way, not to the shepherds, but to the sheep. And Jesus has compassion on them. And again, the prophet Ezekiel, from whose writings Jesus is quoting, is compassionate. When he's speaking in the name of the Lord and reflecting the Lord's compassion for the people of Israel. So he says in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, I myself will search out for the sheep and I will seek them, just like a shepherd's supposed to seek his flock. The Lord is going to come close to his people and uh, be gracious to them and compassionate to them. And that same compassion is the compassion that Jesus had echoed in Matthew 9, 36. He had compassion for the people. And here's the challenge I want to set before you. We're going to get to Exodus in one minute. How can we combine not one, but two distinct reactions? How can we react as Jesus did to the people who deserved condemnation with condemnation and as Jesus did to the people who deserve compassion with compassion? It is all too easy, you see, to speak out against the evil in the world and to forget the compassion bit because it's the evil and wickedness of the world that hits our headlines whether it's expressed by people in authority, our shepherds, our leaders, uh, and, or whether it's expressed by people in positions of, I suppose, more um, still authority, but um, uh, teachers in schools, who've uh, abandoned the constitution that might be written on their wall or whatever it is that has happened. But at the same time, um, how easy or how difficult do we find it to express the kind of compassion and brokenness for the people who live in the houses that you drove past on the way to church this morning. Some of you drove past houses on the way to church this morning where you know, well, you don't know personally the people who live in there, but you know enough about your city to know the kinds of broken, dare I say dysfunctional lives that our friends and neighbours live, don't you? And children, there are kids in there who didn't wake up to the kind of breakfast that my family and I were treated to this morning at the Booth's house, like with quiche and... Two different sorts of cinnamon pastries and orange juice and tea and coffee and all. Like, like you know, they woke up to a drunk father and an absent mother. Yeah. And th- how easy or how difficult is it to combine a righteous recognition of the wickedness of the world with deep, heartfelt compassion for sinners the like of whom Christ died for? Now, those two reactions are actually expressed in different ways in the book of Exodus, which focuses also on how the Lord responds, particularly to the powers and the authorities and the leaders of the Egyptian nation during the time when Israel were enslaved. You've got the Lord's reaction to Pharaoh... And then towards the end of the passage, or towards the end of the plague narrative of which our reading was a part, you have the people welcoming the Egyptian uh, few who wanted to leave the nation of Egypt with them. And I want to just uh, walk you through the short section that we looked at today, and to show you four elements of this picture, which show us how to interpret the world that these people were living in. And therefore, derivatively, how to interpret the world we're living in. Here you find the people of Israel, lost and helpless, crying out for mercy to God in the midst of a nation whose grip is tightening around their necks. And children, once again, you will grow up in a nation which, unless something changes, will have its hand around your neck and will be squeezing more tightly. How are you supposed to interpret that history? And there are four elements to this picture in Exodus chapter 8 I want to give you. The first two are somewhat longer. I'm going to spend a bit more time on them. The third and fourth we'll move through more quickly. But hopefully nonetheless that will provoke some uh, helpful reflections for you as you think about the world and the city and the nation you live in. So first, what's the first element of this picture which shows us what God is doing in the world by showing us what God did in the days of Moses and Pharaoh. The first element is this. The idols of Egypt were humiliated. The living God confronted the false gods, the idols of the nation of Egypt, and he assaulted them personally and humiliated them. It's a major theme of the plagues. If you've um, read any books uh, working you through the book of Exodus, you will know that uh, many of the plagues in the uh, chapters 7 to 12 or so are directed against things that represented gods in Egypt. Uh, Most famously, like the Nile. What's the first plague? The Nile does what? What happens in the first plague? Children, anybody want to help us out? Stick a hand up. I can see you're not used to this. Who's this pastor who's asking us to actually pay attention. And they say, yes, that's right. Come Stick a hand up and tell us what's, what happens to the Nile in the first plague. Somebody tell us. Yes, ma'am. Turns to blood. Very good. The Nile turned to blood. Now, the Nile was one of the so-called gods of Egypt, one of the idols. It was one of the things that the Egyptians worshipped. Now, I want you to imagine you watched the first plague from a satellite or from a plane flying over, and you just watched it turn to blood. What's happened to your god? It's like bloody nose. Your God is bleeding, and that's just plague one, as the Lord confronts these gods of Egypt. Then you work your way through the plagues, and not all of them are against uh, entities which were known to be gods, but the ninth plague certainly was. Who can tell me what the ninth plague was a plague against? This is difficult. Maybe some of the adults want to help us out. Maybe some of the elders want to help us out with this one. The ninth plague was against the sun. What happened to the sun in the ninth plague? Children, what happened to it? You may answer. Yes, sir. It went dark, yeah? So what's happened to the, the, the God of the sun in Egypt in the ninth plague? The God is dead. It's like, where's that God gone? Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, must have confronted him. Not just given him a bloody nose, but wiped him out entirely as the sky went black. So you see what's happening in the plagues, time and time again, the the true God is confronting the false gods in a kind of divine wrestling match and flattening his opponent. Now what happens in these plagues, there were many other plagues in Egypt, the second and third plagues, the plague of frogs and the plague of gnats, also highlight some confrontations between the God of heaven and earth and the gods of Egypt. Did you know that there was a frog god in Egypt? Anybody know that? There was a god in Egypt called Heket, Heket was actually a goddess, a female god. If you Google Heket, Heket with a Q and no U. So don't learn any spelling lessons from that. H E Q E T. god called Heket, and it's a female body and a frog head. Sounds weird? I know. Don't ask me, I wouldn't have gone to that church myself. And, and you've, got to ask, you've got to ask yourself the question, like, why would you worship a frog god? It sounds slightly bizarre, doesn't it? Well, every year in Egypt, the Nile flooded, bringing tons of water and rich, fertile sediment to the land and it all flooded the land and as the waters receded it left the sediment behind enriching the soil and making it possible to grow things. So uh, Egyptian agriculture relied on the flooding of the Nile but when the waters receded, they didn't recede entirely they left, left sort of squidgy, squishy puddles which is like England the whole of the time okay, so three inch sort of deep, warm, muddy pools filled with, guess what? Ribbit. Like big, fat, juicy frogs. Right? So what happens, and often in um, uh, polytheistic cultures, people will tend to identify as a god anything that's associated with a good thing that happens to the nation. So a good thing just happened to the nation, the, the soil got wa- watered and became fertile. What brought this good thing? Oh, the frogs. And so they kind of deified the frog because the frog was associated with the fertility of the soil, and they called it Hecate. And so here are all these frogs kind of uh, sitting around in warm, muddy pools, reminding the Egyptians you've got to worship this frog god who has brought fertility to the land. Now what's the Lord going to do? This is very, very interesting. What is the Lord's response going to be to this particular god? See, sometimes he'll give the god a bloody nose. The Nile bleeds. Sometimes he'll wipe the god out completely. The sun is blackened and put to death. What's he going to do here? Look at verse 2. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. Well, that's not so bad so far. Frogs supposed to be frogs in the Nile. That shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. And these are not nice little kind of pet Oh, great, we've got a pet frog. No, 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 you've got thousands of not pet, just frogs in your bed and in your bedroom And in the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls, there is no way you can go to escape from the frogs. Now, what's God doing? You see what he's saying? It's like, you like frogs. You you want want to make this particular thing your idol. Well, let's really see how much you like it. How do you like the frog God, O Egypt? You see what he's doing? He is showing the futility of worshipping this thing, not by taking it away and revealing its weakness, but by giving you so much of it that you cannot move for frogs, and showing its vileness and despicability. How do you like your frog god, O Egypt? In other words, he will drown you in the thing that you have chosen, hand you over to the false gods that you have started to worship. And once you start to think of it like that, you think, of course, that's exactly what the Lord does at other times in history and it's tremendously helpful to remember this when you're trying to understand the times you're living in for example when the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness and God has given them you know, more bread or well, manna divine uh, miracle bread from heaven than they could possibly need the Lord gives them manna what do they do? well first apart from collecting it in the wrong way and bringing God's judgment on, its, on them so it filled with maggots and it stinks they complain and they want meat Give us meat to eat. And the Lord's like, okay, you fancy meat. How about quail a metre deep as far as the eye can see? And you'll eat it until it comes out of your noses. I looked at one or two of my kids this morning and the, the food set before them was so plentiful. They were, my kids were starting to struggle with it. Now that's saying something, right? Because normally they don't struggle to eat cinnamon pastries. But can you imagine being forced to eat quail? Which I suspect is probably a bit like chicken, until you're past bursting. And you're like, if you watch the Simpsons episode, and he's at the eating competition, it's like, and you get to the point where you're throwing it up and eating it more and throwing it up again and more, and how do you like the quail, oh Israel? More soberly, I and mean, that's sobering enough, think of um, throughout the history of Israel's monarchy. They want to be like the nations. They chose a king to be like the other nations, and then when they had kings, most of the time they worshipped the gods of the nations. So what does God do? He's like, okay, you like the gods of the nations. How about exile? Go not live in Babylon for seventy years. See how you like the nations. And Romans one, a similar structure of thought you could, you could hear it echoed in how we were describing Egypt's plight earlier where the Lord hands people over three times it says in the, in the text of Romans 1 that God gave them up God gave them up God gave them up not to something other than what they'd chosen but to precisely what they had chosen in order to real, reveal the futility and horribleness and depravity of the false gods that they'd embraced God gave them up to precisely the depraved lifestyles that they had chosen. So the sins in Romans 1 are not... It's not only the the, the terrible things that you see described as sins. Those terrible things are the judgment of God itself, which God has brought upon a people who have chosen those idols for themselves. God is drowning them, in other words, in the idols they've chosen. So, it'd be worth thinking, wouldn't it? If you wanted to understand your nation's history... What are the idols that you've chosen? What are the idols that your fathers, forefathers, have chosen? And how is it that the Lord might be drowning you in what you've decided to worship? And you could think of many examples. Let me me just give you one example just to get you thinking and then you can think of more, I'm sure, later. We have made an idol of sexual permissiveness. Back in the 60s, really, late 60s, we started to move in this direction, both in your country and in mine, where anything's allowed now. I mean, I, th- I think probably the, the the problem with sexual exploitation went back much further, uh, at least in England to the Victorian era, where you've got... Um, you have, there are stories that have been emerging over recent decades of you know, a, a guy in a position of power, like in a business, will get a young girl pregnant and then when the child is born, the child will be taken away and the, the, the girl will be sent to a nunnery in Ireland or something so the guy can just carry on doing his thing. But, but with the coming of the 60s, the advances in medicine and legal changes meant sexual permissiveness is like, you're like the doors wide open, both doors wide open, and taken off their hinges and anybody can just walk through. So by the time you get to the mid or the late 20th century, you look around you and you see, well, let me give you one example. There's a couple at the church that I minister at who um, uh, they do... What kind of dancing is it? It's some kind of Latin American dancing that they do together. And they go, and they go they've, their class is in the school hall in a school a few miles north of the church and they go to this school and Nick was telling me the other month that, um, yeah, they've got rid of the boys' and girls' toilets now in the school and they've replaced them with one set of toilets for everybody because I don't want to offend all the transgender people because there, are, because there must be thousands in this school. There aren't any. But uh, there's one set of toilets with a glass front and individual cubicles and sinks for everybody. Okay, how do you like your sexual revolution? How, how are you enjoying sexual perv- permissiveness now, Oh, England? Can you see what the Lord is doing? He is giving us over to precisely the thing that we have so foolishly chosen and so wickedly idolised in order to show us how destructive and depraved it is. It's just like with the frogs. Isn't it strange? Isn't it frightening? One of the really frightening things, you know, is um, this is plague three. Sorry, this is plague two, the frogs. gnats, are plague three. There are eight more. Now, our temptation is to think, uh, well, you know, this is, this is pretty much as bad as it could get, isn't it? This is as bad as we can imagine. No, no, those two things are not the same. As bad as you can imagine and as bad as it could get are not the same thing. Your grandparents, 30 or 40 years ago, would not have been able to imagine the situation that you're now living in. If you want to know what's going to happen in the next 30 or 40 years or what could happen in the next 30 or 40 years, you just need to imagine something which is now unimaginable. Right, and just have a think about where that would take you. What's currently illegal here? There's still some things that are currently illegal, aren't there? Right, well, three or four decades What's the Lord doing? Drowning you in frogs. And the end result will be, if this is how the Lord chooses to lead you through the next few decades of history. You see, children, why you need to be ready for stuff that your parents didn't have to deal with. If this is how the Lord chooses to lead you through the next few decades of history, will be verse 8. Well, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, please get the frogs away from me and I'll do it. And then the Lord, it's remarkable, the Lord has patience some kind of mercy and kindness he still shows to, um, the, uh, to Pharaoh. Um, his sovereignty, his, his uniqueness as the only God is even revealed in how, you notice what Moses does where um, Moses says, well tell me when you want it to be done and I'll do it exactly then. The point being then Pharaoh won't be able to, to attribute the end of the frog plague to just natural causes. You pick the hour and I'll, t- and I'll pray to God and then he'll stop it that all the earth may know that this is the true and living God. But then what happens by the end? Verse 14. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Very significant moment in the narrative. What happens to the land of Egypt in this plague? It stinks. Absolutely disgusting, even after the plague has stopped. We have a couple of missionaries at our church. Actually, it's a family that, um, supported by a number of churches, ours included, but many others, churches and individuals, and they're currently uh, working in Nairobi in Kenya. So, husband and wife and four wonderful young children. And they came home uh, a few months ago because their youngest daughter needed some medical treatment. So they came back and they had a few couple of months back, actually. Mercifully, praise God, she's fine now. So they went back to their house in Nairobi and there was a really bad smell, really bad smell. Like, you couldn't go in the kitchen. It was absolutely disgusting. So they're like, what's happened? And it's like... "So What happened is two rats had died under the floorboards. Two rats had died and you couldn't live in the house. Ever had that out here? Right, you've got the land filled with steaming, stinking heaps of festering frog flesh. And you see how the imagery is supposed to work here, don't you? You, The land has become unlivable in, pretty much, just about. I mean, you've got nowhere else to go, you're stuck here. But you see how the Lord is describing the way in which he sovereignly superintends history sometimes. In fact, the the smell thing is really significant in the Bible. You you may know that um, uh, under the Old Covenant, the the tabernacle and the temple were to be filled with incense. And the incense um, was made according to a specific recipe. Exodus chapter 30 describes the the incense recipe that is to be used when you're making the incense to be in the tabernacle. And you think, why is that? And the, the reason is because it's a very, very nice spell, smell. Spell, smell uh, quite expensive spices, some of them. But the point is that only the tabernacle or only the temple is supposed to smell like this. There's something really deeply evocative about smells, isn't there? So the holy presence of the Lord is to be associated emotionally with a particular smell. That's why it's really, really disturbing when you're walking through the supermarket, sorry, the the mall, um, and somebody else walks past who's wearing your mum's perfume. It's like, ugh. My wife, Nicole, used to have the same perfume. One of the perfumes she had was the same as my mum's. It's like, this is really freaky. <laughs> because, because smell is so evocative. Yes? Smell creates this emotional kind of reminder and connection. And that's why if you're selling your house, what they tell you in England to do is make some coffee and put it on the stove just before people come around to view it because it smells really nice. And so the same imagery of smell works in depicting the beauty and wondrous holiness of the people of God under the new covenant. So 2 Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 2, I must remember to say 2 Corinthians here, not 2 Corinthians, otherwise I sound like somebody famous, which is <laughs> not my aim at all. Um, the, the the fragrance of Christ is contrasted with the smell of death in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Yeah, it says that the fragrant oil of the spirit, oil in the ancient world would often have been fragranced. I mean, who wants to just have... A, olive oil on their head, it's like sticky the oil would have been fragranced oil, fragranced fragranced with some kind of spices or lavender or something like that, so it's like a perfume beautiful kind of rich smelling, especially in a country that doesn't have deodorant, so seriously you you want to have the fragranced oil if you're wealthy enough to to afford that cosmetic and the spirit fragrances the people of God with this rich and beautiful wonderful smell which is like the smell of God it's the fragrance of Christ Paul says How does Egypt smell? It stinks. You See how it's... This is depicting that after the the storm of the judgment of God has passed on this occasion, you don't want to live here. So I'm really sorry to say, this is a very depressing sermon so far, isn't it? Um, That's one way in which the Lord sovereignly superintends the history of his world to bring humiliation to the gods that we've chosen and concomitantly with that, filth to the land. Which brings us to the second point that I want to highlight. Um, The land of Egypt itself was devastated. We've seen that already. By the time you've got dead frogs lying in heaps, steaming and stinking in the midday sun of Egypt, the, the land is pretty unpleasant. But the devastation of the land of Egypt is highlighted in other ways too, particularly with the third plague. Remember the third plague? We read it. it's a quite a brief narrative from chapter 8, verse 16 onwards. It's the plague of gnats. And the thing about gnats is, well, it's, it's kind of hard to work out what's the distinction between gnats and flies. In English, and I think, if I understand rightly, what most commentators on the Hebrew text think is that you've got to think gnats are more like mosquitoes, flies are more like horse flies. I'm not sure which is worse but on the whole, it's better to have neither. Which is why living in Louisiana, for example, why would anybody live there? Because a horsefly is like this big. You know. Anyway, that's somebody else's problem, mercifully, not mine. But see, see um, the midges are like little tiny things. You ever had that when they sort of fly past your ear? And notice where they come from. Look with me. Verse 16. Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Very intriguing. Why the dust? What's, what's with dust? How does how does the imagery of dust resonate throughout the Bible? Well, you know, the first place that dust appears is dust is the stuff from which a man is made. Dust is the, the soil or the earth from which the Lord made Adam. And dust is, I guess, it's code for the soil, which should be rich and deep and fertile and a source of life and nourishment and food. But of course, it's, it, from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, dust is associated with death because dust is the thing that Adam turns back into. And so you know now if you go out into the street and you see dust in the gutter or dust by the side of the road, there's no way anything's growing on that. Dust is what a land is turned to when it's barren and death-ridden. Dust then throughout the Bible, from Genesis three onwards, is associated with death. Your family dies, what do you do? You anoint yourself not with oil this time, but with dust and ashes. And dust and ashes in Hebrew are like the one is Afar and one is Afar. They're both like almost the same word. Dust and ashes, they rhyme and it's like this. Dust is a picture of death. So you strike the dust, this is really creepy now. You strike the death, and the death comes to life and starts to bite you. Death is no longer crouching in a corner. Death is swarming all over you. The land was filled with gnats. Gnats on men, gnats on beasts, gnats everywhere. Not like you can just hang up one of those little sticky gnat um, traps and it's it, it stuck and then you're okay to carry on with your barbecue. This is swarms almost as bad as Scotland in May, which gets pretty bad with gnats and midges. Death has come to life and is stalking you. And actually you get this progression through the plagues um, and some commentators have pointed out that some of the early plagues don't seem too bad. Well, mean, okay, don't seem too bad compared to what? Well, they're pretty bad compared to anything we've had to put up with, but they're nothing compared to the later plagues, right? So, frogs stinking out the land—that's pretty grim. I mean, you can shove them away and put a peg on here and just kind of live with it. Or, you know, the, the Nile's turned to blood. You can still find water because you dig along the side of it. So, the first and the second plague—they're not so bad. But by the time you get to the fifth one, all the livestock are dead. Well, by the time you get to the eighth one, locusts. By locusts, you think, you think little juicy insect. Nice to go and see in a zoo or something. No, no. Locusts are the one thing that's worse than an army invading. You can fight off an army. You can't fight off locusts. So when the prophet Joel wants to describe an army, which is the most terrible kind of army you can possibly imagine, how does he describe it? Locust army. Four different kinds of locust army. Because locusts will just destroy everything. You see locusts today, you know next summer you'll probably be dead. So you see what happens? The plagues get worse. And what's the final plague? You go through three cycles of three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. What's the final plague? Plague of death. The plague that puts an end to life. Worse and worse and worse. So here's a, back again to this disturbing question to ask yourselves as you're trying to interpret the history in which you're living, how much worse do you think it could get? The mistake would be to plan for the future as though you've just hit the bottom Right now, and things are going to get better from this point on. There is no good historical or theological reason for thinking that America could not be reduced to another dark age by its own sinful, idolatrous wickedness and by the hand of the Lord's judgment against it. So the land of Egypt was devastated. Now, thirdly and fourthly, more briefly, And I'm afraid the third uh, point is no more bright than the first two. The fourth sheds a little light. And so um, don't burst into tears and go screaming out of the room on me just just yet. But the third uh, aspect of this situation that uh, Exodus 8 calls attention to is the remarkable fact, thirdly, that the leader of the people of Egypt was unrepentant. He had just seen the frog thing. And look what he does. Verse 8, he pleads with Moses to uh, plead with the Lord on his behalf to take the frogs away. Now that's really significant because that means that he knows who's in control here. He knows who's in charge here. He knows actually what's going on. He's got, you know, this is plague two already and he's kind of figured this out. And by the time the plague is taken away at Moses' command, you notice it said the Lord listens to the the voice of Moses? It's astonishing. It's like the prophet can speak and the Lord will act. There's a thought. Uh, He knows... Who's in charge here? He knows what's going on. And by verse 18, the end of the third plague, you see this even more and more clearly. Verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. Well, that's really significant, isn't it? Because they could do the first couple of things. They could turn water into blood and they could make frogs appear. Although why they'd want to, it's slightly annoying, isn't it? It's like, first plague happens, the land, all the water's been turned to blood. And so somebody spent half a day digging by the side of the river Now they got like one bucket of water, and they come to Pharaoh and they say, like, all the water's gone, this is the only water we've got. And the magicians say, don't worry, and it turns into blood. It's like, thank you for that. And now you've got frogs everywhere, and they're like, we can do this too, more frogs. Like, Couldn't you take the frogs away? Anyway, by the time they get to the third plague, mercifully for the Egyptians' sake, the, the, their own magicians can't make it any worse, at least not immediately, um, so there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. So the magicians are not just court jesters. They're kind of senior advisers. They would have had a kind of religious, political position in the court. Pharaoh understands that this is something strange going on. This is Moses and his God who's in control here. The, the magicians agree with him. So what this is like is in 50 years' time, after you've had the frogs and the locusts, and the livestock, and you're thinking, when's the plague of death going to come? And your president and his advisors have one of those meetings in the Oval Office, and um, that the advisors come to the president and they say, listen, we, um, we have noticed that our nation has been uh, experiencing something of an economic downturn for the last 70 years, um, and some of the things that have happened seem to be beyond natural explanation. We've we got this horrible feeling that the prophets might be right, that some god or other maybe. The God that they keep talking about is behind this. Maybe they're right. Maybe we are under the judgment of God because it's not like the earlier stuff where we could replicate this as he's beyond our power. And then the president says, you know what, I've been thinking the same thing myself. Um, it's like it, it, there's, there's something very strange at work. And the magicians say, yeah, we, we think that... Well, if the prophets are right, then presumably the only thing that will work, the only thing that will save our nation, is if we all repent, like you repent, and we repent, and we plead with the Lord for mercy, and then we actually do what we said we are going to do, and we don't kind of renege on our word. And the president says, yeah, you're right. The only solution is if I, the president, repent, and you do the same, and we lead our nation in a prayer of repentance to the living God who made heaven and earth. And the magicians say, so what are you going to do? You're going to repent. And he says... Nah. No. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them, as the Lord had said. It's an astonishing thought that in this nation, the nation of Egypt, things went from bad to worse under the judgment of God, and the king knew it, and he knew that repentance would fix it, and he refused to repent. The leader of the nation was unrepentant. Are there any good grounds for expecting anything different from our leaders? Well, it's possible. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. I guess we'd better pray that God gives us a Nebuchadnezzar and not a Pharaoh. So what's the note of brightness at the end? Remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand the history in which we live. What is it we're supposed to be looking for as, so to speak, the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, you know that after the ten plagues, the Israelites escaped and they were led out into the wilderness by Moses as they uh, were on the way to form a new community and live a new life as the people of God. And on the way, they were not alone. But, fourthly, some people of Egypt joined with them in leaving this ruined and desolate nation to join the people of God and begin a new life. Here we skip ahead, no need to do so in your Bibles, to a well-known moment right at the end of the plagues, Exodus 12:38, 12, 38, when it remarked, the narrative remarks that a mixed multitude went out with the Israelites. Not just Israelites left Egypt, but Israelites and a whole flock of Egyptians who had had enough. They had seen how the Lord had put to death some of their gods, They had seen how the Lord had drowned them in the filth of other gods and they'd realised, you know what, this Moses character and all these funny prophets and all those strange Christians are right and I don't want any part of this anymore. And by the grace of God, despite all their failings, despite all their failings, the people of Israel somehow found it within themselves to welcome these foreigners to join their community and to be a part of the new nation that was to be constituted at Sinai and make its way to the Promised Land. In other words, they had boundaries in Egypt, but they were porous boundaries. This community of people, like a little infant church, nestled in an increasingly wicked world, left the doors open. They built high walls to keep the wickedness of the world out, And they trained their young men and women to fight in the generations that were to come, to stand against the wickedness and the temptations that 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 they were to face. But they didn't bar the gates. They were always ready to welcome anybody and anybody from the world who wanted to join them. And it strikes me, as we conclude, that that is the challenge we have. As the heat intensifies, as our culture becomes more and more depraved, and you want less and less to do with it, How are you going to find ways to leave your figurative church doors open to welcome in here the maybe a few people, maybe a torrent of people who want to join with you? So build your walls high and train your next generation of young men and women to be faithful soldiers and to stand against the wickedness of the world. But please, please, please leave the gates open and live such good lives among them that they want to be a part of a community that God, by his grace, is building among you here. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God, we thank and praise you for the privilege of being called as your children, and we recognise that as a privilege. We're not in here because we're smart enough or good enough, but because you have been abundantly gracious in keeping the promises that you made ages and generations ago, And we pray you'd continue to keep them and we dare to pray you'd keep them through us by making us into the kind of attractive community of Christians who will appeal to the world around us and have the kindness to welcome those from outside our gates when they choose to join us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.